Welcome back to Beyond the Pulpit. I'm Jenny Weeks, Director of Adult Discipleship. In this second and final episode on C.S. Lewis, Dr. Hal Poe continues his exploration of Mr. Lewis's life through adolescence and beyond. Faith and doubt were often intertwined for this acclaimed 20th century author. Let's get started. Let's go back to the beginning. This morning we talked primarily about his youth um, and the struggles of growing up. And uh, they're pretty much the same for most people. I think he's important to understand simply as we think about what our youth ministry should look like. How do we tend to the spiritual issues of young people as they're going from childhood to young adulthood? And in quick succession, in just a matter of a few years, they go through early adolescence with its need for self-esteem, middle adolescence, and its need to establish a sense of, of independence, and late adolescence uh, with the formation of identity. What am I going to do? What am I going to be? Who am I now that I'm no longer identified by my parents, my high school, um, and this is often when we see the phenomenon of kids graduating from high school and graduating from church. Have you noticed that? Yes, it's common. Um, so Lewis went through all of that, but as we saw this morning, in his um, mid-teen years, establishing his independence, you know, we usually think of that as knock-down, drag-out fights with your parents well, he wasn't with his father, and his mother was dead. His father had sent him off to England to be educated, so he couldn't have knockdown, drag-out fights with his father. But he did reject his religion. That's, you know, that's a, the kind of statement young people make, not for any particularly rational reason, though it is possible to rationalize uh, one's steps. And um, for Lewis, it was, well, in studying his, his Latin, he came across all these different gods and goddesses of antiquity. And every culture has their own gods and goddesses that are just myths. And so our God is just a myth too. And so he was easily uh, able to dispense with, uh, with that. But we also saw that he, he bought into the idea of materialism, the idea that the only thing that exists is the physical universe. The, uh, the four fundamental laws of uh, uh, strong weak nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravity, and the electromagnetic um, field make reality. And there is nothing besides that. Now, that's what he was doing intellectually with his tutor. In his free time, he was reading romance. I don't mean Barbara Cartland. I mean the romantic stories of the Middle Ages, uh, Mallory's uh, The Death of Arthur, um, uh, Edmund uh, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, and all of these grand uh, allegorical romances that involve a journey and a quest against uh, impossible odds in which you're probably going to die. Uh, for noble ideal, chivalry, noblesse oblige. And he had all of these high-flown ideas that were associated with fiction. And associated with materialism was ambition. 
And he said that everything that he loved and was beautiful and glorious, he regarded as fantasy, imaginary, not real. Everything that he thought was real was just as dry as toast. So he had a cognitive dissonance set up. He had two diametrically opposed ideas. One related to his uh, entertainment, you know, his free time reading, and the other associated with his school study. It was a real conflict. And his second great doubt came when he began to doubt the materialistic interpretation of reality. His first doubt was associated with deciding there really wasn't a God. Second doubt was that, oh, the materialists don't quite have it right because I have all of these feelings that cannot be explained by a material explanation of the universe. So he concluded, there is something more. Not God, of course. No, no, no. The spirit of the age, um, or, or any kind of spirit, or something. Just not God. Nothing personal. Nobody to get in your way. Because at this age, when the struggle is for independence, he didn't want some God meddling in his affairs. Now, if you don't settle that issue in middle, in, uh, middle adolescence as a teenager, you'll carry it with you all through life. And you can be a 45-year-old not wanting anybody meddling in your life. You can be an 80-year-old. Uh, when I was pastor in Simpsonville, I had a 95-year-old man who was still struggling with the issues of early, early adolescence, that is, self-esteem. And I would say that's an issue that out of the back of our mind and who knows where it came from pops up from time to time all our lives. So just to be aware of it is to be forearmed. In his last stage of adolescent de- development, deciding who he is, what's he going to be, who is Jack Lewis, um, he did decide, I'm going to be an academic. I'm not going to be a lawyer like my father. I'm going to go to Oxford and study and be a philosopher. And oh yes, though I'm exempt from military service in World War I because I'm Irish, not English, I'm going to go fight anyway. Because he's living out the noble ideal, the chivalrous knight, um, uh, the sacrifice, even though it means my death. He bought into these ideals, these values, this noble sense that there is more to life than um, uh, ambition. And so off he went. He was decorated for heroism, wounded, almost died. Um, He was only at the front as a 19-year-old lieutenant, second lieutenant, um, cannon fodder, um, just a few months before he was wounded in uh, um, March of uh, 1918. And so he was out of the war. Um, The armistice was signed before he was uh, uh, fit to go back to active duty. So when he was uh, released from the hospital, it was off to Oxford. And there is this now agnostic. He'd gone from atheism to agnosticism. And because he'd bought into the idea that there is something more than the physical universe, that there are some sort of ideals and values out there, and the ones that particularly spoke to his heart were beauty, 
truth, goodness. And he'd picked all of this up, not from the Bible. And he had thorough Bible knowledge. I mean, he was taken to church every Sunday. And Church of England, well, Church of Ireland, same thing. Um, And the prayer book. And you go through the lectionary. So you go through the Bible every year. And you read the apostles, you recite the apostles' creed every Sunday. So he had the information of the Christian religion. But he was picking up the values of Christianity. And they were making their way into his heart by reading the fiction written by Christians over a period of a thousand years. And this became very important for him in understanding apologetics and how to connect with a secular audience. Um, But for the time being, he's on his journey. I won't recite all the little steps along the way um, from um, just this general idea of uh, uh, something out there. To the, fact, to the point that he finally decided, oh no, this something is actually personal. Here's the problem with love. Love, well, it's what Jenny was getting at with not just praying for somebody, but visiting them. The love is relational. Love is not a concept. Love only exists when you're doing it. It's not a sentiment. It involves another personal person. Love is personal, and you don't really find it in religions that do not have a personal God. Now think about that for a minute. Love is relational. You don't really have the concept of love in other religions unless they have a personal God, and there aren't many religions like that. So he was, he was getting... He was getting hemmed in on every side by the rationality that he had come to recognize. And he saw the universe as a rational place. Otherwise, science doesn't work. If the universe is not rational, you cannot do scientific experimentation and lead to results that you can uh, apply to the entire universe. So there's a rationality to the universe. And so he finally admitted there was um, a God. But... Not necessarily one who meddles in your affairs. You know, like the, um, the God of the deists. He may have started things off, but now he's retired and he's doing something else somewhere. I and mean, we're here to run our own affairs, and that's fine. It's comfortable, you know, stay at arm's length. Uh, then, um, around about 1930, he'd been hanging around Oxford for 10 years now. He'd gotten his degrees. He'd been teaching for five years. Um, one of his best friends in Oxford now was J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a committed Catholic. They both taught on the English faculty. They, late at night, they were walking. They'd been to supper at Magdalen College, which is a grand affair. It takes two hours to eat supper with all the courses. And then you go into the senior commons room, which is English for the faculty lounge, and drink your port and your smoke your cigars and have your coffee, and then it's 11 o'clock at night. Then they went out for a walk on the grounds of Magdalen College. That's, we spell it Magdalene, as in Mary Magdalene, but the poor English don't know how to speak their own language. It's Magdalen College in Oxford. 
It's a mile-long loop within the grounds of the college. As they were walking, uh, Lewis said, well, I I really can't accept the, the Jesus story because it just sounds like that same old myth we find in every culture about the dying and rising God, which was the story of Osiris among the Egyptians. It was the story of Baal among the Canaanites. And you find it all over the world. And uh, Tolkien said, oh, well, you're absolutely right. It's just the same old um, myth of the dying and rising God. The only difference is that this is the one that actually happened. Now, that floored him because he was thinking of the exclusivity, the exclusive claims of Christianity. It didn't occur to him that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ might actually be doing something in other places around the world than just with the Jews. And he thought about that. And yes, all the other stories are once upon a time. But the story of Jesus begins when there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing first took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, which is some of the most accurate dating you find in the ancient world. They didn't have a dating system to tell you when something happened. Everything was related to whoever was in charge at that particular time. And then you started over when somebody else was in charge. And Jesus didn't die once upon a time in a faraway place. He died on Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, when Pontius Pilate was uh, governor of the province, and Herod Antipas was um, tetrarch of Galilee. And we even know who the high priest was. This is Luke, the Greek historian, who's giving us very precise information. And this troubled Lewis no end because we've got an anthropological problem. You know, if there is no God, you've still got an anthropological problem. That is a human problem of history and culture. How do you explain the same myth, the same story of a dying and rising God appearing in cultures all over the world? That's a problem. And so Lewis was hemmed in again. And he thought about it and he thought about it for several days. And uh, in in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he wrote that um, he rode uh, to the Hampstead Zoo in a motorcycle sidecar one day. When he left Oxford, he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But when he arrived at the Hampstead Zoo, he realized that he did. Um, He called himself the most reluctant convert in England because it wasn't something he had planned to do or wanted to do. It's terribly inconvenient having a, a Lord of glory at first blush. At second blush, it's very consoling. And so he went in uh, full-blown, full-kilter, and um, you have to turn it on. 
then you have to hold your mouth just right. Um, so while his, this conversion process was taking place, he was trying to establish himself as an Oxford academic. He wanted a reputation, which meant he wanted a promotion and a raise. And um, his, his best shot was a book on what he'd been studying really uh, as a teenager. When he got to Oxford, he wanted to be a professor of philosophy, and that's what he did his degree in. Only when he graduated, there weren't any positions, none. And his fallback idea was, I'll go back and I'll do a one-year study course in English literature, which was a brand new field. They didn't teach English literature in colleges and universities until the beginning of the 20th century. So it was brand new. They were still figuring out how to do it. And so this was his big chance. The problem was he didn't have a degree. And it takes a number of years to earn a degree. Anybody here been to college? Okay, you got to go through and you got to read all that stuff and you got to take all these tests and you got to all this stuff. So he did it in one year. Now, how could you physically do that? The reason is he had already read everything one was expected to master in an English literary degree when he was in what we would say high school. Remember all those stories he loved? He was doing that on his own. So he had mastered it. And so there was an English position available when he graduated the second time after a year. And um, finished, we would call it all A's, magna cum laude. They call it, he had a first. So, um, so he's, he's working, he's teaching, and he's doubting his agnosticism. He's doubting materialism. So doubt's not a bad thing. One of the things that attracted me to Lewis was his willingness to change his mind when he was wrong. That's something very few of us are willing to do. But Lewis changed his mind on a number of things, not just whether or not God exists. Um, A number of ladies here. Lewis changed his mind on women. And you read Lewis in the 1940s, and um, uh, he may not have invented male chauvinist pig, but he did it very well. He did it very well. Uh, The problem was he didn't know any women. (laughs) Remember, he grew up, his mother was dead. He grew up going to uh, all-boys school and then living with the Kirkpatricks. And the only woman he knew was Mrs. Kirkpatrick, and she was sort of a caricature of... um, Everything a feminist does not want to be associated with being a woman. And so he sort of got in his mind, that's what women are like. Um, And then, uh, you know, he was at Oxford. It was virtually all men. Uh, There were a few female colleges, St. Anne's, St. Catherine's, uh, Somerville, St. Hilda's. Those were the four. But you didn't come in contact with with the females. And um, so he really didn't know much about women. So he was going with the caricature he had inherited from the literary tradition. In Grief Observed, you read his great repentance 
on what women are like because in the meantime, he met Joy Davidman. Now, talk about changing your mind. When he was in what we would call high school, he came across uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, House of Seven Gables. Some of you have read that? He said, oh, I liked it. I liked the idea of a cursed house. And he, this was his occult period. He was thinking, well, maybe, maybe that's what's out there. So he's fascinated by the occult. He, he, that didn't last very long, but it was part of his period. And um, he said, oh, it's, Hawthorne is a great writer. It's too bad he's a beastly American. A beastly American. And um, then toward the end of the war, as Woodrow Wilson was making his proposals, um, Lewis, you know, a a typical teenager who knows everything, um, said he didn't care for Lewis and, I mean, for Wilson and his crowd, just money-grubbing yanks. Um, He didn't care for Americans. And uh, why didn't he care for Americans? Because, um, because... There. I mean, what bigger reason do you need than that? When he was uh, a little boy, before he'd started school, his mother took uh, him and his older brother to France for a summer vacation to a seaside resort. Of course, if you go to France, you naturally stay in an English hotel, um, so you're not to be contaminated. And he came back and told his father, Father, I have a prejudice against the French. And so his father said, well, why is that, Jack? And the little boy said, well, if I knew, it wouldn't be a prejudice. And so he had a prejudice against Americans, as many English do. Um, And Joy Davidman represented everything C.S. Lewis abominated about the modern world. First, she was an American, but not just an American. She had been a communist, but she was also a woman who thought for herself and wrote poetry after the style of T.S. Eliot, and Lewis blamed T.S. Eliot for the fall of Western civilization. Um, And on and on and on it went. She was a modern woman. And he talks about modern women in his um, last of his science fiction novels, That Hideous Strength. Only he fell head over heels in love with this New York Yankee. And what's to be done? Well, confronted by that, you either affirm your previous prejudices... You begin to doubt whether or not your prejudices are well-founded. And um, that's the option he took. And they were married. And in A Grief Observe, he describes how he viewed her, this woman who was his closest friend, in the, in the Four Loves, where he describes the four principal kinds of love we experience, affection, Friendship, eros, romantic love, and agape, this godly love described by Paul in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, 
um, he described these, these uh, but he said, now men and women can't really be friends. Women, women really aren't able to think in such a way as to really engage men in, in deep conversation. So we can't really be friends. And the reason he knew that is, is um, because. Which is perfectly good reason when you don't have one. Um, what he discovered was, in fact... Uh, Joy Davidman met him point for point, idea for idea, uh, besting him all along the way, steel sharpening steel, and oh my goodness, if I'm wrong about women, there's no telling what I'm wrong about. So, so he had different kinds of doubts um, as he got older. I'm going to come back to uh, a grief observed in a little bit. Let's go back to his, his beginning before he had that doubt. Um, he was uh, establishing his career, and he um, was writing his big academic book on his main area of study, medieval, allegorical, courtly love poetry. At this point, we all yawn. Um, and he began the book by saying, most people aren't able to read it because it belongs to a different culture. And the very idea has to be translated. We don't do allegory anymore. We do facts. We do facts. But the idea of metaphorical language, analogy, uh, uh, poetic representation is not something our culture has done since the dawn of the scientific age, we are a fact-based culture, and, and poetry is difficult for us. And so you have to go back into the mind of the medieval world to be able to grasp poetry. Our last link with the, the poetic world was the King James Bible. And uh, I can tell by the color of hair in this room that uh, many of us at one time knew only one translation. And you could ask people to recite together a verse of Scripture, and it would be in unison. Whereas today, if we ask people to recite a verse of Scripture, it sounds like the day of Pentecost. Uh, because, you know, there are so many translations there. But as long as we were using that Bible, well, y'all remember the deacons or the pastors who prayed, and the bishops, oh yes, the bishops especially, prayed in Elizabethan English, and you always addressed God in Elizabethan English. Thou hast been our resting place, and you and you you spoke everything in in King James English. We had that connection, so that was still a touch point when Lewis published his book in thirty six. But here's the problem: another anthropological problem that he was dealing with in his conversion, and it relates to love and romance and marriage. On the planet Earth, third rock from the sun, marriage has always been a business deal. It has to do with the exchange of property, goats, chickens, women. It's, uh, it's transacted between families, sometimes between nations, 
um, you can marry my daughter and I get Holland. Um, and this sort of transaction it was, has always been going on. You read it in the Bible. That's what goes on on the planet Earth until the 11th century. And in the 11th century, all of a sudden, the poets are talking about love, romance. Now, at that point, the idea of romantic love was restricted to adultery. Because you, gentlemen, you wouldn't be in love with your wife. I mean, she just showed up on your doorstep one day. You might be in love with the miller's daughter. But that was outside the bounds of marriage. Um, Lewis was concerned with the problem of why in the world did Western culture go from the 11th century, where romantic love was adultery, to the plays of Shakespeare, where the play ends, they married and were happy all the rest of their days. They lived happily ever after because they fell in love and married. That's, a, that's the great Shakespeare story. Unless you kill them and then it's a tragedy. But uh, nonetheless, the idea of marriage based on love. And uh, this is part of his conversion. It's in the background. But how do you explain the historical problem? Because on the planet Earth today, the majority of marriages are still business arrangements. And yet our culture has been infected by the New Testament understanding of marriage. In which, first of all, in Christ... There's neither male nor female. And so this idea of tit for tat. And the Apostle Paul, who usually gets a, a bad rap, and I would all recommend you all take a closer look at the Apostle Paul and what he says about marriage. Because the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians is mutuality straight down the line. And he's saying, uh, women, you have to decide whether or not you're going to get married. And the Corinthians would have all had a stroke at that point because until that moment it is a woman's father or closest male relative who decides whether or not she's going to get married. And for the Apostle Paul to say, ladies, you have to decide whether or not you're going to get married, essentially destroyed civilization. Not T.S. Eliot. It was the Apostle Paul and he got it from Jesus. And so this idea began infecting Western culture with, with what Lewis called the good infection. See, that's the spread of, of Christianity. That's, that's being made in the image of Christ. You get the good infection until it takes over body and soul. And that's what we've seen the gospel doing, working like leaven through the culture takes a long time for leaven to work, but once it starts, can't stop it. So he was dealing with this historical reality too, to observe. He's dealing with the big ideas in a logical, rational fashion, and he's dealing with the fact that he has experienced beauty and love and truth himself. So he was done for. He became a Christian. Now, how did he become an apologist? 
That wasn't his job. English literature was his job. Um, Because in order to write the allegory of love, he had to master Western theology. Because the allegory of love was all in a Christian context. And to understand the stories that were being written in the 11th century, the 12th century, the 13th century, he had to understand the writings of Augustine. He had to understand the writings of Thomas Aquinas. He already knew the Bible, but he had to understand the theology that was the background for all of these allegorical stories because almost all of them had a touchstone with the Christian faith. It was latent. And he, he, he insisted on getting underneath the surface to understand what was the context. So that by the time he wrote this book, he had mastered Christian theology accidentally. Oh, by the way. Um, World War II breaks out. He's written his great academic work, which was very well received. Oxford University Press said, hey, we're doing a history of English literature. We want you to do the 16th century, excluding drama. Somebody else is going to do Shakespeare. We want you to do the 16th century excluding drama. And this is great because this is Edmund Spencer is in the 16th century. Oh, this is great. And this is great for his reputation, for his career. So they asked him to do that in 1936. Doesn't turn the manuscript in for 20 years. We know about publication deadlines, don't we? Yeah. Um, But there was this little interval called World War II that interrupted things. And uh, World War II came along And he put everything else to the side because he was asked to do something. He was asked to write a little book because they knew what this war was going to be. Those who had gone through World War I knew how dreadful this war was going to be. That many people would die, not just um, in the trenches, but people would die on the home front. In World War I... A few Zeppelins had tried to bomb London. Between World War I and World War II, the aeroplane had come into its own and massive bombers had been built. London was going to be bombed. All the cities were going to be bombed. Massive death. He was asked to write a book um, that he named The Problem of Pain. The Problem of Pain. Simply stated, if there's a good, all-powerful, loving God... Why do bad things happen to good people? There's a good, all-powerful, loving God. Why did he let the Germans bomb London and kill thousands of people? It's a very good question. It's a legitimate question. It's a question Job is dealing with. It's a question the folks were dealing with in Jerusalem when they asked Jesus, Jesus, why did that tower fall on all those people and kill them? Why was God mad at them? You know, so how do we ask the question? So Lewis did an interesting thing. He turned the question around and he asked, what on earth ever gave us the idea that God was good and loving? Going back to his mythologies and the beginnings of civilizations, 
Nobody thought God, their gods were loving. They may have been powerful, but they were ghastly, abominable things. Um, I perceive that many people in this room are from European descent. Any folks out there descended from the continent or the British Isles? Several. Okay, let's talk about our family, shall we? Our ancestors. The ones Lewis was intrigued with, the Norse mythology, the Celtic mythology, the stories of Wotan, that's one way his name is understood, or Odin, same name, same God, depending on what part of Europe you're from, from Spain all the way to Russia, from the Alps all the way to the Arctic Circle. Celtic religion, we think of them as the Druid priests who... um, Uh, led in sacrifice to their gods. Do you know how they worshipped? Julius Caesar tells us all about it when he conquered Gaul. Anybody suffer through Caesar's Gallic Wars in Latin? All Gaul is divided in three parts? No? no. Very few. A few nods. Some of us are old enough to have taken Latin. Latin is a dead language, as dead as it can be. First it killed the Romans. Now it's killing me. Um, Well, I have to tell you this for you to know a little bit about your own family and ancestry and about what was animating C.S. Lewis. And this is true of all the cultures. The gods were dreadful, dreadful. You didn't worship gods because you loved them. It wasn't to praise gods. It was to get them to stay away. And Caesar says um, that he outlawed the worship of the Celtic religion as it was normally practiced and required by uh, threat of death um, that they substitute goats. Because up until then, well, let's do it this way. Any firstborn children in the audience? Let's see those. Oh, pastor. We'll have a pastorless church and, and only half as many congregants. Because the way the the Celtic people, our our ancestors, worshipped was they sacrificed their firstborn child to the gods. And they took them down to the sacred grove. And you'll find this same religion in Canaan where the sacred groves and the sacred oaks. And it was the same religion because this was the abomination of the Canaanites. They take the child and the child would be nailed up on the oak tree. Why the oak tree? Well, these oaks were massive and centuries old. It was, they had been there forever as far as the culture was concerned. They didn't have writing. They just had memories and stories. This was where the, the gods congregated, and this was where they received their sacrifices, and there would be a spring there, and it's all connected together. So here's the child. The reason you need the priest to do this, and you don't want to do this at home, because you'll just mess it up. So you get the priest to do it, because they know how to do it. You see, you want to slit open the chest cavity so that the heart keeps beating. Y'all have been to weddings where they have the fountain with either champagne or if it's Methodist or um, uh, punch if it's Baptist wedding, you know, and you put your cup on there. Well, that's that's the effect. And you want to catch the blood in in a cup, which of course was made from a skull from Uncle Ben, Great Uncle Joe, Great Great Uncle Hal. And, you know, after a few generations, you've got a whole set of these for the family. And um, now here's what our ancestors figured out. 
when the gods come up to get the life force out of the blood, this is clever, you drink it real quick and you get some of the divine power in you. Isn't that good? That's smart. That's our ancestors. Um, then you take the, um, the body down, cook it, and have a barbecue for the family. That is the religion of Europe. Those are our ancestors. That's where we came from. That's our history. Now, the only good news is, well, it's sort of like they taught us in seminary. Nobody got saved this Sunday morning, but praise the Lord, nobody got saved at the Methodist church either. Um, So, yes, this was bad, but this is also global. Human sacrifice is global. It's in every culture. Scratch us just a little bit deep. And humans are horrendous. Imagine how God feels about that. That's the background. So Lewis is saying, whatever gave us the idea that God is good or loving? Where did that come from? It didn't come from human religion. It came from God himself breaking into history and making himself known. So you've got the prophets of Israel, the starting point. And then he says the historical event, the incarnation, where God does not demand sacrifice, God gives himself to end sacrifice. And so Lewis Lewis tries to turn this idea upside down because we often bring to the question um, all sorts of presuppositions and assumptions that aren't warranted. And he's really good at that. He's really good at thinking of it from a different point of view. Thinking of it from a different point of view because he had come to faith from a different point of view. And he realized just as we cannot read allegory unless we go back and understand the culture in which it arose. We need to talk to people from a different point of view to understand how are they thinking and rethink what we're thinking. Um, So he started his first apologetics not intending to write apologetics. He was an English professor for crying out loud. He was asked to do it. Well, it was so well received. It was so well received that the religious coordinator at the BBC um, asked him if he would do a radio broadcast on a topic of his own choosing. Um, he did, in the end, he wound up doing four of these different series um, during the war. And they were published in the 1950s as Mere Christianity. And I remember the first time I read through it, I loved the first part. And then he just seemed to wander off into some other area. And I couldn't figure out, this, it, this doesn't, isn't making a logical progression. It was only later that I understood that it's not a book. It's a collection of four different, independent, unrelated radio broadcasts. And the first one is one I fo- want to focus on. Because essentially, his, his argument 
for the existence of God and the reasonableness of God coming into time and space is based on his own experience, his own experience. And we're, we often think of Lewis as this highly rational, philosophical writer when he's really not. He's logical and he's rational, but he always wants to connect with our own experiences and our own feelings. And mere Christianity begins with him connecting with his audience and saying, we've got this sense of right and wrong, or what the English would call fair play, fair play. And um, we know when we've been done dirty. We don't always notice when we're doing somebody else dirty. Have you noticed that? He said, part of this human problem is we've got this standard of knowing when something is wrong, been done to us, it's wrong. Why is, you know, somebody does one thing, it's okay, and we do something else, it's wrong, it's not fair. And he says, well, fair with respect to what? You know, if we say it's cold this morning, cold with respect to what standard? You know, we've got a thermometer. And, you know, in our culture, it's 70 degrees. If it's above 70, it's hot. Below 70, it's cold. But what is this standard? And the main thing he does in that first broadcast is just get around to the idea, and he's taking it slow, that we do have this idea of, of right and wrong. And something I've done with my Edgar Allan Poe stuff, Poe is the one who invented the mystery story. In our culture, one of our favorite stories is the mystery story. And it's on every night on television, the mystery story, in some, some kind of way. You know, the detective is finding out something, finding out who done it. But the mystery story only works if the audience brings to the story the idea of right and wrong. Brings to the, the story the idea of justice. The story assumes the audience has a desire to know who done it. They want the innocent person set free. They want the wicked punished. They want things made right. Or the biblical word is righteous. We use the slang word now. We just say right. But it's the, the old the middle, uh, uh, Shakespearean English word is righteous. It's not a religious term. It's fair play. And so Lewis is saying, this is something we all experience. Where does that come from? And essentially, he leads his audience along his own progression. And so he's inviting people to doubt their own doubts. And to doubt their own doubts, not based on any claims he's making. He's inviting them to examine their own experience and see what they really already know. Because his understanding is... God has sprinkled the universe with clues under every bush. It's what Wesley, shall we bring Wesley into this? What Wesley would call prevenient grace. Oh, grace, there's that word. Now we're covering everything, yeah. Prevenient grace. And um, with his idea of, of, of... the same myth winding up in culture after culture after culture after culture. 
Tolkien, his friend, had an influence on him. And the idea was that God has not been only interested in the Jewish people. That, in fact, God has been speaking to every culture through its own stories. Even if the stories were abominable, the stories were pointing in a direction. So let's go back to our ancestors. We'll just pick out one slice, the Irish. Anybody got Irish blood in them? Anybody will admit to it? Oh, golly. Oh, golly. Well, of course, we got tired of the damp and came to Kentucky where it's damp. Um, So Patrick. Patrick marches in to the sacred grove and declares, In the name of Jesus, I command you, be gone. And he cast out the demons, the demonic forces that they'd essentially been worshiping. These gods are dreadful things. And he declared to the Irish, the Lord Jesus has a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee must bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether things in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There's your demons. Spiritual beings, whether it's Votan or The dwarfs of Nibelheim, it doesn't matter. They're all subject to his command. He is the exalted Christ. That was the big issue for the Eastern Orthodox. The the exalted Christ Pantocrator, ruler of all. And so they were free from the dominion of these dreadful gods that they hated, but they had to pay off with their own children. And here's the kicker. And he has died Once for all. That lovely phrase, you find it over and over in the New Testament. He has died once for all. He is your substitute. Sacrifice is ended. Your children are free. He bids us now drink his blood. Eat his body. And Ireland converted in one generation. And where the gospel went in Europe, from Ireland to Scotland, from Scotland to northern England, from England, you know, where the Saxons were to their German cousins, and then the low country, it was one generation each because this is good news. Typically, the queen converted and led the king because what mother wants to kill her own child. It's a dreadful story. We don't tell that story very much. But it's a glorious story of the gospel. Oh, the freedom in Christ. The love in Christ. The glory of God being made manifest. That's what was hitting Lewis as now he's reading his literature with this new perspective. But in the broadcast talks, the problem of pain... In the broadcast talks, he's encouraging us to come into the conversation and identify with our own experience to say, isn't this what you really know? Doubt your doubts. That is, reconsider your assumptions. 
They might be wrong. You may have to change your mind. And you all know the, the Greek word for change your mind, metanoia, which appears in the English Bible as repentance. Change your mind. Uh, well, on and on he went. Um, what happened? Did I push the wrong problem of pain? Ah, as he was doing the problem. <laughs> Speaking of the Blitz, here's the, the BBC building. It was bombed during the war, too. And so there was danger in, in what he was doing. He called it his war works. There's the first set of broadcast talks. It, it was published in a little thin book, thinner than this. And um, each series was published in a little little thin book, and they were all brought together as mere Christianity in the 50s. Um, screw tape letters. That was not originally a book. Each chapter was originally just a little piece in the Church of England uh, newspaper uh, over a period of weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, he said it was the most difficult thing he ever wrote because, again, he's writing from the other point of view. That is, he's trying to think of it not as a Christian should think about temptation, but as Satan would think of temptation, and in which God is the enemy. Um, and it was a very, it was, he said it was the most spiritually dangerous thing he'd ever done, um, to think in a diabolical way. Um, and the fruit of it in his own mind was, uh, in the end, a strengthening. Uh, screw tape letters isn't a theology of, of Satan. Um, it's a theology of temptation. How do we experience temptation? And the idea is in the story, in the telling of the story, he's helping people see themselves. So he's not pointing the finger at anybody. He's holding up a mirror. And uh, good fiction of this kind does that. It's not a lecture. It isn't a wouldn't your grandmother be ashamed of you if she could see you now sort of a thing. It's looks what's going on in this fellow and look how Satan views it. This is just glorious. He's doing exactly what we want. And so um, it's a different kind of a doubt. He's, he's wanting his readers to doubt their own self-righteousness. Now think about that a moment. And this, this is essentially what he's having to do to write, to write this. You know, he's pretty puffed up with pride. And in fact, he admitted his biggest sin is pride. His biggest sin is pride. And in writing this series of letters from... Um, a, a, a senior demon to a junior demon with his first assignment, his first patient. That the problem and that the idea of, of conviction, and, and, and Paul says we should examine ourselves before we come to the table. Examining yourself really does involve doubting your own self-righteousness. You know, examine what are your grounds uh, and, um, oh, what's the old hymn? I don't know if y'all sang this. Um, um, 
about boasting. What do we boast in? What is our confidence in? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the weakest frame. Holy lean on Jesus' name. You know, yeah. And um, if your righteousness is built on anything else, it's probably got a really shaky foundation. And so um, this is a really holy doubting, a holy doubting. Um, then he was doing the same thing in uh, the great divorce. It's looking at it a different way. Um, and he, he would often talk about a supposal, which is say, this is not theology. I'm not writing about a, a theology of heaven and earth, just the opposite. Uh, instead of the way things are, suppose you could take a day trip from hell to heaven. Well, you can't. But he's doing imaginary things. Suppose you could. He's not making a declaration of a theology. It's, it's, it's fantasy. Suppose you could. What would that be like? And so um, it's not a theology of hell or of heaven. Again, it's an understanding of temptation. And what do we make of ourselves? Uh, by what steps do we wind up who we are and where we are? Again, it's a journey. Everybody's on a journey. And he said uh, the, the door to hell is locked from the inside. That we make certain choices along the way. Um, so again, it's, a, it's an understanding of, um, of who we are and... Um, on what basis this idea of grace. I love, I love the fellow who is murdered and he's in hell. He makes the day trip and lo and behold, there is his murderer in heaven. And his murderer says, well, you can come here too. He said, I don't want no handouts. I want what's mine by my rights. I want what I've worked for. I don't want nothing more than that. Just what's coming to me. He doesn't want grace. He wants just what's coming to him. So one thing Lewis is doing in that is, is encouraging his audience to doubt their theology of salvation. Again, to come to accept what is very difficult for a lot of people to accept, the idea of grace. It's hard, remarkably hard. Um, we, we like to get a good deal. We like to think we've beaten out the other fellow. We like to take pride, and especially in our culture where, you know, this is what we do. We start with nothing and we do great things, we're pull yourself up by your own bootstraps culture. Um, many years ago, I was preaching a revival down in, um, down near Fort Knox, down above Elizabethtown. And the pastor there, it, it was one of the only churches that I'd ever been in where they actually did a good job of preparing for the revival. That is, the church had been ministering in the community all year long. They come in contact with a lot of people, and they were, they were engaging them. They were doing what Jenny was talking about, going to see people, and, and a lot of things going on. So there was this particular couple um, 
and the, the, they'd, they'd come to the church. They'd been looking. Uh, he was a retired master sergeant. She was Japanese. They'd met during one of his tour, tours of duty in Japan. And they'd uh, had secular backgrounds. But they'd come to the point, they'd been checking out religion. They'd come to the point that they believed uh, that God created the heavens and the earth. They believed that the Bible was uh, God's revelation. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that Jesus died for them on the cross. They believed that he rose from the dead and is exalted on high where he rules the universe as the head of the church. Here's our prayers. They believed that Jesus was coming back one day to judge the quick and the dead and that they were going to hell when they died. You know, at that point, I was still a good old-fashioned Gnostic. That is, we're saved by having information and they checked off the long list and so they must be saved because we're saved by information. Um, only they weren't saved, and they knew they weren't, and I was really bamboozled. The pastors kept saying, don't you want to be saved? No, don't you want to be born again, brother? And he said, yes, I do. Well, Jesus died for your sins. You can go to heaven when you die. He said, yeah, but uh, I don't want to let him down. Oh, you don't have to worry about that because Jesus died for your sins. You can go to heaven when you die. And he said, yeah, but I want to walk the walk. Oh, well, you don't have to worry about that because Jesus died for your sins and you can go to heaven when you die. And he said, yeah, but I don't want to be a hypocrite. Oh, don't have to worry about that because Jesus died for sins and you can go to heaven when you die. Which is about all Americans tend to do at least the last 50 years in talking about salvation. And then it's like, have you ever been hit on the head with a, a Louisville slugger? Jesus promised us several things about what the Holy Spirit would do. And he said he would teach us all things and call to our remembrance things concerning him. And give us words to speak when we need them. And it was like he was shaking me and saying, How don't you want to be born again is from the third chapter of John that doesn't say anything about the cross, it talks about the Holy Spirit. And I said, oh, um, no one has ever lived the Christian life except Jesus. And what he wants to do is come into your life and change it and live his life through you so that you are no longer a hypocrite or a failure, one who can't live his life, he changes you from a child of dust to a child of God. And he was gloriously saved. That's the good news he needed to hear. It caused him to doubt all of his legalisms. He was a legalist. He did not understand grace. Um... And so that's, that's what Lewis is doing um, with um, uh, the great divorce. Let's see. I want to go on now. Let's skip through a few of these things and get to joy. He wrote his spiritual biography, which was called Surprised by Joy. And by that, he meant this ineffable longing and desire that drew him to God. It's the idea that... 
God is calling to him. And then, lo and behold, he meets this lady whose name is Joy, and he is surprised by Joy in an entirely different way. Falls head over heels. She is an American divorcee. He has strong words against uh, divorce. It's the unforgivable sin. And Lewis changes his mind about that. He's always changing his mind. He's still growing out of his younger legalism in something else. And he gets back to grace. Um, again, who's the one who, who helps us with that? The poor old guy who gets such a hard time, poor old Paul. Um, and he deals with it in that same seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said, yeah, it's best not to divorce. But if you do, eh, don't get married. But if you do get married, and it's, it's not... Oh, God won't talk to you again. It's, um, your options change. Life is going to be different. The grace of God is still there. The Lord still loves you. It's not, it's, it's, my mother told me how, when I was a little boy, don't touch the red burner of the stove. Now, I've done this with students. The girls laugh, the boys turn red because most of the boys wanted to know what it felt like. And I could ask for a big amen there, but I won't. I see all the smiling faces. So there's a difference between a warning and a threat. It's different. So they got married uh, there's a lot of complications in, involved in it, and, and he had his own struggles. They got married, and lo and behold, she was dying of cancer, and she did die. And that gets us back to this little book. And um, this little book is the, um, it's the counterpart to the problem of pain. The problem of pain, he says in the introduction... This doesn't have to do with what pain feels like. You know, this is on a Tuesday afternoon when everything's going well. This is how to think about it, that we learn things through pain. But this book, the bookend to the problem of pain, is what it feels like. And it is irrational. He's not trying to make sense of it. He's angry. He says... No one ever told me that grief feels so much like fear. We don't talk about grief a whole lot until it grabs us. Um, and he talked about suffering and thinking of suffering. And he said, oh, the problem isn't that I no longer believe in God. The problem is that I now realize God is a monster. That God is just toying with me. And he's letting, he's letting it all come out. This is what grief feels like. Now, on a Tuesday afternoon, those of us who are doing well really don't want to hear people talk like that. And we want to 
fix them and convince them, oh, you shouldn't talk like that, which isn't what God does at all in Scripture. In the midst of the pain and and the suffering and having lost everything, that's when Job finally comes face to face with God and he's sitting there on the trash heap with him. And God isn't upset that Job has been saying all sorts of mean and nasty things about him. Uh, God handles that pretty well. Any parents in the room? Do you ever have a child or a daughter? A child or a daughter. Hmm. (laughs) Son or a daughter. A son or a daughter. Say, um, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and slam the door. Um, Once they're gone... There's a tendency for us to laugh rather than say, well, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you too. Uh, we, we don't hate them. We, it's, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. But here in this dark time of his life, yes, he's doubting everything he's ever written about God. And it hurts. And he gets through it. And it's calmer. And he knows God is there. Um, But now he's ready to write his book on prayer. Because this was his real prayer to God. This was when he really could, could just say awful things to God. And God didn't even blink. Because God loved him. And God knew God knows. God knows what it feels like when the one you love the most is nailed to a tree. God knows what we feel like when we go through pain and suffering. This was primary, one of the primary purposes of the incarnation. We're told about it in the second chapter of Hebrews. In order for him to be sympathetic with us, he became like us. So he knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like. And so um, from doubt, Lewis uh, experienced assurance. He experienced comfort. And he could write his book on prayer. Because now he finally knew how to pray. I'm going to stop there. Because I I teach a semester-long course on Lewis, and my tendency is to drone on and on and on. But we've got a few minutes left for questions. I think about ten ten minutes left. Is that right, Jenny? Eight minutes left? Yes. So if you have questions or comments, I'd be happy to uh, entertain them. And we've got a microphone here so your question can be heard. Anybody? So in kind of in preparation for this, our Sunday school class um, did a uh, kind of a a high-level overview of the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh. And one of the things that happened when we got to the last battle, and you referenced it this morning, uh, one of the questions that that came up in our discussion was, um, did Lewis write the Chronicles of Narnia as a form of 
evangelism literature, or was that more of a creation of a fantastical story that he just had to get out that had Christian parallels? Okay. Uh, Very important. Um, Fortunately, Lewis has told us the answer to that himself. Um, And he writes about it in in some letters. Uh, Just before he died, he had a, um, a conversation with some science fiction writers that was taped and they published it in a sci-fi magazine about the writing process. And um, uh, he said that he had, had never written any of his stories with the purpose of trying to convert people. He said that usually doesn't work very well because it winds up not being a very good That's for the sermon or the lecture. He said the story needs to tell the story. So it has to be driven by the story. But he says that... Um, if you're writing from a Christian perspective, then that's going to come through the story. Now, um, when he started the Chronicles of Narnia, um, we'll go back to his teenage years when he was living with W.T. Kirkpatrick uh, in um, Surrey. And uh, there, when he was 16 years old, he had the image in his mind of a fawn walking through the snow uh, with an umbrella and uh, packages. What was that? And the Chronicles of Narnia began with him giving that picture a context. And, and um, you know, these children staying in the house with the professor... And we often think, oh, well, the professor is C.S. Lewis and the house is his home, the kilns in Oxford, because during World War II, some children from London were evacuated to his house and they stayed there. But no, no, the professor is W.T. Kirkpatrick and the house is down in the wilds of Surrey and the child is C.S. Lewis. He's remembering what it's like to be a child and to, to play. And um, so he's got a story going along, and um, uh, uh, Bill is a novelist, Liz is a novelist, I'm a novelist. (laughs) And uh, even if you've got a general plot in mind, sometimes you have an entire plot, but you're surprised as the story, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, this, the novel I published this summer, I was writing it along, and the fellow who I thought was going to marry the girl, he gets killed. And I, how did that happen? <laughs> Lewis did not have Aslan in mind. And Aslan just suddenly appeared in his story. And he didn't know where it was going, but it went. The stone table... The stone table is actually in uh, a few miles from his boyhood home in Antrim, Antrim County, County Antrim, Northern Ireland. It's an ancient um, burial place of the, of the pre-Celtic um, civilization. Um, uh, Ker Paravel is Dunluce Castle in County Antrim, the ruins of a castle next to the sea. Um, so he collects up all these, these images and things from, from childhood. But what he said uh, about the, the Christian uh, obvious dimension 
He was explaining this to a group of youth leaders right after World War II. They asked him to talk to them about apologetics and how you do it. So he gave some, some pointers on, you know, the problem of, of pain and the moral argument for the existence of God, which is his right and wrong idea. And he said, but while we're on this subject, let me, just, let me just make this point. The best apologetics is not little Christian books. The best apologetics is little books by Christians on every subject with the Christianity latent. And I tried that out a few years ago. Most of my books are, you know, they're theological books. They're written for pastors or for uh, classroom, Christian classroom, or for Christian college administrators. They're they're for the Christian ghetto. And I thought, well, I'm going to try what he did. And I wrote for Edgar Allan Poe's Bicentennial a a book about Poe. But it's really about Poe's spiritual journey. And that's the one that won the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America. And I was dumbfounded because it's about his spiritual journey. Um, And it works. Uh, So that's that's essentially what he's doing with all of his fiction. Now, some is more blatant. Um, uh, Screwtape Letters and... uh, um, the, the uh, Great Divorce are written for the Christian community. But the Chronicles of Narnia are written for a broad public, for children, they're imaginary. And as he's writing them, he's realizing, oh, well, this is sort of this and this is that. And, um, so it becomes more intentionally um, Christian. As he reached a, a, a problem, he wrote one book, he sent it to his publisher. The publisher said, yeah, that's great, only we need this for the Christmas trade and it works good if you can have seven of them, and we'll bring one out every year. So he did not envision the Chronicles of Narnia. He just had one story. But he needed a little, you know, uh, walking around money. So he, he agreed to it. Uh, Mrs. Moore, the lady he'd been taking care of, had to go to a nursing home. And he was strapped for cash. And so he he, he wrote the series. But... Yeah, he, he, he says, you don't start off, I'm going to write a, a theological story. But if you write a good story and you're really writing from a Christian perspective, it's going to come out without having to intentionally do allegory and symbolism. After he wrote The Pilgrim's Regress, he didn't do allegory or symbolism ever again in his writing. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to Dr. Hal Poe for his enlightening and encouraging look at the journey of faith and doubt of C.S. Lewis. God bless.